now a healing element of his ministry. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 17 of Matthew chapter 8. And here's what Matthew records for us. Now when he, speaking of Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority and with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the centurion Jesus said, Go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand. And the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Several years ago, we, we entered a partnership uh, with a man named Pastor Joseph. Many of you know him. Partnership in Haiti. And as that ministry was beginning to uh, get off the ground, I heard a lot about Pastor Joseph. Uh, many of you I've heard a lot about Pastor Joseph. He's visited us a couple of times. But at the beginning, I, I heard uh, that Pastor Joseph was a remarkable man. I heard a lot about his reputation and his authority in the country of Haiti. And, and as I began to learn, I, I learned that before Pastor Joseph became Pastor Joseph, he was Judge Joseph. He was a, a judge in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. He was a well-respected uh, judge And consequently, because of his service uh, as a governing official, he had many connections, he had many uh, uh, relationships with existing government officials. I remember one time we were driving and, uh, and there was, we had to stop because there was a presidential 
blockade, and I, I learned that he, he knew the president and had him on his, in his cell phone. He had his own number, had the president of Haiti on, on, on his number. Um, and so these were things that I began to hear. And, uh, but it was another thing when I began to witness kind of these things come to fruition. And one particular time, a group of us, and I don't remember which group was with us, uh, it wasn't the first time we'd gone to Haiti, but Pastor Joseph said that he was going to meet us at the airport. And that's unique because usually his brother, Nego, is the one who, who meets us. And Pastor Joseph said, I want to make sure uh, that everything is handled and taken care of for you and your team. And so I'll be there uh, waiting for you. And, and my initial thoughts were, okay, good. Uh, we won't have any uh, you know, hiccups as we're carrying our luggage uh, out of the airport, because sometimes there's, there's some um, people who want to ask you lots of questions and look into your bags and, and, and such. Well, it was far better than that. Uh, when we got off the, the plane, uh, we're on the customs side before you, I guess you get to the freedom side, and, and there was an officer waiting for us, and, uh, and Pastor Joseph was behind the customs booths and kind of gave a nod to that officer as if those are who I'm waiting for. And, and we thought, okay, uh, he's going to bring us to the front of the line of customs because we saw all this long line of people waiting to get in. And when you come to Haiti, they, they know uh, who's American and who's not. And so they put the Americans in this very long line, and they ask you for money and uh, basically a tax to get into the country. Well, we're going, and I'm thinking, oh, good, we're going to get to the short line. Well, we didn't go in line. We went right through customs, no questions asked, no stamps. It was just, oh, actually, I think they did stamp us, but it was just like, give me your passports, we'll take care of it, and we went with Pastor Joseph. It was as if we were these special elite people, and you could have seen, like, the people in line, especially the other mission trip people who were, who were standing in line, they saw us, and didn't, you know, we didn't look special, we didn't have all the, the, the same t-shirts on as everybody else did, and no doubt, they probably thought, oh, no, what did they do? It wasn't what we did, it's what he did. We're with Pastor Joseph. And it was all, okay, this man's reputation does precede him. And there's, there's a sense about him. This isn't just talk. There, there's truth in this. Well, we come to Matthew 8. And that's the sense in which Matthew's wanting us to kind of turn to. You've heard that Jesus is a man of great authority. In fact, we see in verse 29 that that's what the crowds were marveling over for in chapter 7, verse 29, he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This whole sermon that we have embarked upon over several months was a sermon which boasted of great authority. Jesus claims at the very beginning of it, he says, you know, your, your Bibles, your, your Old Testament, it's all speaking of me, finds its fulfillment in me. And if that wasn't startling enough, he says, actually, I'm the proper interpretation of everything you've heard. He says things like this, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And that takes some chutzpah, if you will. I'm the one who speaks with authority, the same authority as the Word of God. Not only does he speak about 
his authority and, 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 and the fulfillment of Scripture in his person. He, he tells them how to have a relationship with his Father. But he also concludes by revealing that he's the Lord, the one by which all people will be judged by on the last day. And he draws a line in the sand, and he says, you must build your life upon me as the rock. He speaks with great authority. But Matthew moves into this narrative, and he shows us that not only does Jesus speak with authority, but he acts with authority. He comes down the mountain, and the great crowds are following him. And we, and we see Jesus' life after he's taught, he has authority over the curses of leprosy, paralysis, sickness, and even demonic oppression. In fact, Jesus just has to speak a word, and immediately someone is healed. It's because of this power and authority over the curse, he's able to make good on his promise. And if you've been with us over the last several uh, months and sermons to the, the Sermon on the Mount, this is the appeal. Come follow me. I will lead you into the kingdom. And now we're going to see that he can back it up. He has authority over the curse. And because he has authority over the curse, he has authority to bring you into his kingdom. So Matthew tells us Jesus' actions actually were a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Pastor Chris read this for us, but we see at the end of verse 17, he quotes Isaiah, he took our illness and bore our diseases. And this is really important for us as we read about the healing ministry of Jesus. Why are these stories here? Yes, as we're going to see, because Jesus is God. He has divine authority. He has divine power. But the healing ministry of Jesus is actually pointing forward to the ultimate defeat of the curse on the cross, the curse of death, where he will absorb death on behalf of all who will believe and he will rise again. We see an initial fulfillment of this as he is absorbing the curse as it's manifested in various ways. And what Matthew wants us to understand is that Jesus has authority over the curse of sin. But get this, the curse of sin does not have authority over him. He can absorb the curse, but the curse does not absorb him. He can touch the unclean and still remain clean. And so furthermore, as we're seeing this great authority and power of Jesus, Jesus also reveals his willingness, his willingness to deliver all who will come to him. He will deliver. And so this passage teaches us that Jesus has come to bear our sin. Jesus has come to be the, the suffering servant of Isaiah who bears the burdens of his people, who absorbs their guilt and their shame, who bears their wounds so that they may be healed. He is the one who has come to bear the sin of the brokenhearted. 
He's the one who has come to bear the sin of the unworthy, the outcast, the unclean. He has come for the helpless. For blessed are these, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're seeing in these illustrations the Beatitudes with flesh and blood. Notice the people he's coming to heal. The people that are finding life. These aren't the most magnificent people of society. It's an outcast, leper. It's an enemy of the state, a Gentile soldier. And at this time, it is a bedridden woman who has no place in society. But each of them find a place in God's kingdom. This is a beautiful passage for those who are poor in spirit. This is a beautiful passage for those who see their need. It's an awful passage for those who are proud. Because it has nothing to offer you. Because what this passage is inviting us to do is actually to see ourselves through the lenses of these people. That's what this passage is. And so in this passage, we see a beautiful picture. And that's really where I want you to just resonate today. I want you to resonate and just think about your Savior. And if you're, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, there is great comfort and hope for you if you feel like these individuals do. And you see in Jesus the one who can save you. It's a beautiful picture of our Savior who has come to make us clean. And because he is Lord, he has authority and power to bear all our weakness, and he invites each of us to come to him by faith because he's both willing and able to cleanse us from all of our sin, which defiles us. So through this narrative, we not only see Christ in his ability and willingness to save, but there's a secondary element. We see the humble posture required of those who come to him. So therefore, this morning, I want us to see ourselves as the unclean leper, the unworthy Gentile, and the unable woman. I want us to see ourselves that way. Unclean, unworthy, and unable. Let's see ourselves as the unclean leper here in verses 1 through 4. Jesus has come down from the mountain, and a leper approaches him. Now this right there should say, this is unusual. Because lepers weren't to approach anyone. In fact, they were to warn people of their presence so people could run. And yet, this leper approaches Jesus. Lepers were outcasts in society. They weren't to approach anyone. In fact, the law of Moses in Leviticus 13 forbid lepers to be integrated in society. To forbid them. They had to go outside the camp. And often they would be in, kind of in the highways and the byways, the far reach places, which is actually, there's another hint. This is where Jesus does most of his ministry. Amongst the utterly hopeless. So they had their own communities of those who were unclean. And certainly... You weren't to touch them. Leprosy was a skin disease, and 
Skin leprosy can, can stand for many skin diseases in the, in the Bible, but, but formally, leprosy was actually a breakdown of the nervous system. It was uh, where the nervous system isn't functioning correctly, and so you, you don't feel pain as you should. It's a sense in which you, you are numb to it. And so you might think, well, that's great. I'm numb to pain. Well, no, pain's actually a gift from God to let you know, stop doing that, you know? And, uh, and so if you don't know that as you're scratching, you're literally scratching your skin off your face or your nose or your ear or you, 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 you brush up against something or you're burned in a fire and that skin becomes infected and you can begin to see that you, you literally begin rotting. Your skin rots and it stinks you bear the stench of death. And so long before zombies were cool, literally rabbis called them the living dead. That's what they were called, the living dead, because they looked like zombies, what we would call zombies. So this is what those who had leprosy were required to do. This is what the law said. And again, you should be thinking fulfillment. Jesus comes to fulfill the law. Here's what the law said about leper, lepers. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Those words are hopeless to the one who has the disease. A disease that there's absolutely nothing you can do. In fact, I think there's only two cases in the Old Testament where someone's healed from leprosy. I think it's Aaron and the Naaman. So this, yes, if you're cleansed, you can come back into the camp, but until you're cleansed, you can never come back. And this would apply not only to formal leprosy, but as long as you had major skin blemishes and things that may even look like leprosy, until that was taken care of, go outside. And so you can see, if, if you're a leper, everyone wants to stay away from you. And everyone wants to stay away from you because you're cursed. You're accursed. And, and you might infect me. That was the idea. And so you can imagine the loneliness that this leper felt. The broken hearts that these lepers had and how they experienced, how many sleepless nights they probably cried themselves, crying out for help, crying out for someone to love them, watching people every day stay away from them. And yet now we see one running to Jesus. A leper runs to Jesus and he falls down at his feet 
and he kneels before him. That, 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 that phrase, knelt before him, is also translated elsewhere, worship. He worshiped him. He, he bowed down. He falls on his face before Jesus, and he expresses the posture of, of his physical approach with his lips. He says, Lord, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. Now notice there's no presumption on this leper. When he comes, he doesn't demand, Jesus, make me clean. No, he says, if you're willing, it sounds like the Lord's prayer, a little bit of an echo, Lord, that your will be done. He has that heart, I want your will to be done, but if it be your will, I know you can make me clean. And Jesus does two remarkable things. The first is he actually stretches out his hand and he touches him. He touches him. When I was a young boy, I grew up at going to Catholic school. And so every Thursday we had Mass. And part of the Mass, there was one point, which I don't really remember much of it, but you had to hold hands. And then part of the, the issue, uh, part of the service. And, and at that time, we all thought girls had cooties or something. And I remember it was like the worst thing in the world if you had to sit by the girl because you knew at some point you're going to have to hold her hand. Well, that's nothing compared to this, right? <laughs> nothing. This individual probably has not been touched in years. And if it was a touch, it was, get off me. This was a touch of warmth. A touch of acceptance. And not only does Jesus touch him, but the second remarkable thing is that Jesus answers his question he says, I will. I will be clean. And you see immediately, the text tells us, you see the power of Jesus. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. I, I, I would have just loved to see that, wouldn't you? What, was his face literally just restored? His, his appendages who had fallen off grown back instantaneous. I, I don't know. Or was it, if it just like, like a rash like snow, as we sometimes see it, that just went away? Must have been remarkable. And so here we see both the compassion and power of our Savior. He loves the unlovable. He loves the people that, that society says, get away from us. And he absorbs their uncleanliness. He absorbs our uncleanliness. But notice, he himself remains clean. The law says, if you touch or you are with these people, you become unclean. Guess who's greater than the law? The one who has authority. The one who wrote the law. The one whom the law is all pointing to. The one who brings completion to the law. Yes, the law brings the sentence of death, but Jesus is the, the, the next answer. Yes, it kills you, but I make you alive. 
Yes, it reveals who you are. And in the case of a leper, oh, it highlights the curse of sin and our uncleanliness and our inability and unworthiness to come and approach a holy and righteous God. Yes, your sin takes you far away. The curse separates you from God, but I am here to bring you close. Do you see yourself like this leper? That apart from Christ, apart from Him, apart from finding your identity in Him, apart from being clothed in His righteousness, that you're just as unclean. This is why blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, in this case, is the leper. Not because he's a leper, but He feels the effect of sin in his life, unlike the one who doesn't have leprosy. The one who's broken and experiencing suffering and and shame is in a better position because they actually feel the effects of sin in their life. Some of you are in that position. You feel it. I don't have to tell you you're a sinner. You feel it. But what we're seeing here in the illustration of a real individual, one who is really broken, actually, while you see something manifested on the outside that shows they're unclean, the reality is is it's our sin that makes us unclean. And so the question is, does the reality of your uncleanliness drive you to Christ begging for his mercy? Do you find yourself day after day after day, forgive me of my debts as I forgive my debtors? Do you find yourself confessing your sin to him, knowing who he is, as 1 John 1.9 says, that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Some of you are thinking today, I'm too dirty to come to Christ. No, you're not. Because the suffering servant Isaiah has come to bear your weakness, your illness, your diseases, your sin, to make you clean. But notice, not only does Jesus show his compassion, and his power, but when he does the work of cleansing, he also does it to bear witness to his lordship. Look in verse 4. Jesus instructs the leper to report to the priest. There's a sense in which he's still honoring the law. Leviticus 14 says that if you were healed from your leprosy or after you've done your time, you're to come to the priest and they're to examine you and to see if you're clean, and the priest would then integrate you back into society. Well, I'm sure they've never seen anything like this. Maybe this leper was well known. Yeah, that, yeah we knew what happened to him, and he's been that way for years. There's no hope for him. And then this day, he shows up to the priest. And you can imagine that priest being dumbfounded. How have you been cleansed? And he says, I met Jesus. 
I met Jesus. What? Yes, Jesus touched me. He did what? He touched me. And then he said, be clean, and I was cleansed. There's just, you can see that testimony. Every, every sinner who has come to faith and has understood that they have met Jesus, what, what happens out of their mouth? They give them praise. What happened to you? Maybe you've had that ask of you when you, you first came to Christ. What, what happened? And you said, I met Jesus. I met Jesus. Same thing's happening here. And he says, you'll do this as proof for them. That's testimony, witness, maybe some of your translations have. You will testify to the glory of Jesus in your life. You'll testify that he is the Lord, that he's the Messiah, he's the new Moses, he's the Savior that the world's been waiting for. And so we too must see ourselves as unclean, but also we see in this next story that when we come to Jesus... We must see ourselves as completely unworthy. We must see ourselves as completely unworthy. So, so Jesus moves from the foot of the mountain, and now he returns home to Capernaum. And this time, he's approached by a different individual, a centurion. D.A. Carson says this about centurions. Centurions were the military backbone throughout the empire. He's speaking of Rome. Maintaining discipline and executing orders. Think of him as appointed sheriff in that town of Capernaum. And this sheriff, a centurion, had uh, presumably a hundred soldiers underneath him. And while this centurion is not a social outcast, he's probably one of great means. He's in a well-to-do job. He's one of authority and power. He does represent something to the Jewish people. He represents that the enemy still has us enslaved. And yet salvation is of the Jews. So he is far from the kingdom, at least by his position and who he is. He is a Gentile. He is a pagan. He is someone far from God. And this centurion, yet appears to know who Jesus is. He knows who Jesus is, and, and he too approaches Jesus. And now, but he appeals for him, and there's a humility. He cares about one of his servants. Sounds a little bit like, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He has a heart that cares. And he's heard about Jesus, and so he approaches Jesus, and he appeals to him because his servant has become paralyzed. We, we don't know what has brought this about. It seems to have just incurred. Maybe he has fallen with a stroke. We don't know. But, but notice what the centurion says to him in verse 6. He is at home, and he is suffering terribly. So it's not just he's sitting there, and he's like, I can't feel my legs. No, he is in agony. He's in agony. Whatever has come upon him. And Jesus replies and said, I will. Just like a leper. I will. I'll come and I'll, I'll heal him. But notice the humble response of the centurion. Lord. He knows who he is. Lord. I am not worthy to have you come into my home. 
I'm not worthy. Again, there's no presumption here. In fact, there's a sense in which you owe me nothing, Jesus. And this is remarkable. This is the most powerful man in the city. And on human terms, Jesus is nothing. Yet the most powerful man in the city is calling him Lord. He knows something about Jesus. He sees him. He, he sees him as we'll find in a way that many do not. This man of authority knows who the real authority is. And so he calls Jesus Lord. Now, that's even more significant because there was only one Lord in the Roman Empire, and that was Caesar. Caesar was Lord. And yet he calls Jesus Lord. I have, you're the master. Talk about a, a change of heart. And he goes on to explain, he says, Jesus, you don't have to be physically present. But you could just speak the very word and my servant will be healed. He knows something about Jesus. And Jesus says, no one else seems to know. The one who's in the human eyes, or at least in the religious eyes, far from God, actually knows God better than many. This is a ton of teaching for us in how we view the world and how we view who's hopeless and who's not. Centurion goes on, and he, he continues to make incredible insight into who Jesus is. He goes on, verse 9, look. He says, for I too, we'll come back to that, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Notice he says to Jesus, I too am a man under authority. So he's making some sort of comparison. And what's the comparison? The, the centurion's saying, I'm under the authority of the empire, the emperor, Caesar. And what does that mean? When I speak, I bear the authority of Caesar. And I can tell people to do things because I have direct orders, and they know if they disobey me, they disobey the emperor. What's he saying about Jesus? You have divine authority. And you carry all that heaven's authority with you. And everyone who obeys you obeys God. And everyone who disobeys you disobeys God. I don't think he has a full Trinitarian theology developed here. He doesn't know all the confessions of the faith, but what he does know, he sees man, a man of God before him. He recognized that Jesus bears the authority of God, and so he speaks and carries the weight of heaven with him. And this is why in verse 10, Jesus marvels at what he hears. This man who is far from the kingdom, just think, an Islamic ISIS commander, maybe in your eyes. Far from the kingdom. Let him die, we would say. Yet the Lord's working in a man who you never believe he's working in. Jesus goes on and he says, I, verse 10, 
Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. No one in Israel. Those are the people who are supposed to be near to God. There's a reversal occurring. Those who are far are being brought near, and those who seem to be near are actually far. And Jesus then goes on to give a little lesson here. Notice he doesn't speak to the centurion. Verse 11, I tell you that you is actually plural. He's not turning to the centurion because you'll see in verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus said. So he's turned now to these crowds that are following. He says, I have not found faith in all of Israel like this. What do you mean, Jesus? Well, Jesus says, I'll tell you, verse 11. Many will come from east and west. Think about the farthest reaches of the earth. Many will come and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, there are going to be many people far off who are going to come celebrate at the great banquet of heaven. Verse 12 while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sons of the kingdom, those who are supposed to inherit it, there will be many of them who presumed and they'll find themselves outside of the kingdom. Jesus says something very important here, doesn't he? That applies to all people. Get this. The kingdom is only for those who know they don't deserve it. The kingdom is only for those who know they don't deserve it. And the reason that most of Israel does not see Jesus is because they think they're worthy of the kingdom. The only way you'll actually see Jesus is when you see yourself rightly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. What a tragic state it would be to find yourself in, that, in those shoes. One who presumes that they're worthy of the kingdom. Because of their heritage. Because of their upbringing. Because of what they've done. And this is a good word, even to us, as the church. We're learning God's ways. And this is especially true for those who, who I think about my, my kids and, and those who grow up in the church. We must communicate to, that it's not just this automatic, you, you, you're in. No, you must see yourself like this unworthy centurion too. Just because you're physically present, physically near, doesn't mean your hearts are near. Because God is going to raise up even from these rocks, children of Abraham. And they will cry out to him. A people who will honor both with their lips and their hearts. Are your, far, are your hearts far? Have you presumed? We must see ourselves as unworthy. Of course, Jesus sends the centurion back home in verse 13, and 
And it's interesting here. You see faith on display. He says, verse 13, go and let it be done for you as you have believed. That's not communicating because you believed enough, you got it done. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you had faith in me, and as you have expressed it, I have done. You believed who I am, and I have done accordingly. And the servant was healed that very moment. And so when we come to Jesus, we must see ourselves both as unclean and unworthy. We can't come saying, you, you, you owe me, Jesus. You better bring me into the kingdom. No. If you will, would you be merciful to me? And remember me in your kingdom. But we must also recognize that we need him because the truth is we're unable. We're unable. See yourself as, in this case, the unable woman, verses 14 and 17. Jesus returns home now. And he enters Peter's house. And he sees Peter's mother-in-law, who's there sick. Now, this account's actually really short. We don't have much here. But yet, the contrast to the other stories actually is rather profound. It's what we don't see happen. In the previous two accounts, the leper approaches Jesus. The centurion approaches Jesus. But this woman can't do anything. Who knows if she's even conscious? I think the sense is that she's lying sick and, and when we think of a fever, oh, you got, you know, a 100-degree fever, take some ibuprofen and you'll be good. No, like she's lying probably on her deathbed. Who knows if she has come to? She, she may, in some sense, be lifeless laying there. In all the other accounts, the leper and the centurion, they come to Jesus, but in this account, Jesus comes to her. It's as if Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Jesus seeks her out. Someone who's lifeless on the bed. And all we see is he comes by and he touches her hand and he heals her. I know each of us can recount how we came to know the Lord, those of us who know Jesus. Even as we've heard Kennedy's testimony today, as she recounted hearing uh, the gospel in, in church and Bible studies in her home. But each of us, and especially as we come to, to have a greater awareness of our salvation, we come to the realization that, yes, I've trusted Jesus, but that's because he revealed himself to me. He laid hold of me. That we love him because he first loved us. We all have this sense that I was found by Jesus, right? And this is what's being expressed here. She's found by him. And she had nothing. She couldn't even speak a word. And that's the truth for all of us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But he made us alive with Christ Jesus. That's what happened to us. And so he heals her, and then, and then we see after she's healed, look at what she does. She rose 
and began to serve him. She comes too. When Jesus comes, resurrection occurs. People rise up. But what do they rise up to do? They rise up to serve. They serve him. And that's the change of posture. That's the continual discipleship route. That we, we're not saved to live for ourselves. Now we're, we're saved to serve him. In fact, that's exactly what Moses was to tell Pharaoh. Let my people go that they may serve me. And here we have Jesus liberating in verse 16 all those who are oppressed by demons, casting out the evil spirits and healing all who are sick with a word. With a word. It's the same implanted word that caused you to be born again who saved each and one of us, who, who awakened our eyes, who opened our ears, who tore up that, uh, that hard heart of stone. That word was implanted and it brought us life, right? This is what happened to us. We were held captive by the evil one. And yet Jesus came and sought us out. He saw us, and by his word, he frees us, delivered us from the domain of darkness, and brings us into his, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And this word of Christ which came to us is the word of the cross, isn't it? Which we read elsewhere is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Ultimately, we're seeing all in this. Yes, the posture of these coming, but it is the power of Jesus' word that, that brings healing, that brings salvation, that brings life. And it's this message of Jesus on the cross where he took our weakness, he took our shame, our guilt, our sin, and it is that message of the cross that brings us life. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message of the cross. And we're seeing it on display in the person of Jesus as he walked on earth absorbing the guilt and the shame and looking forward to the cross in which he would bear the sins of the world. He bore our sins, brothers and sisters. He bore the penalty of death and he drank the cup of God's judgment dry because he's the sinless, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here's where I want you to leave here today thinking. I want you to marvel at Jesus. Not only does he speak as one with authority, but he has authority. And not only does he have the authority to deliver you from your sins, but he is willing to deliver you from your sins. He's willing. Everyone who asks, he says yes. And he even seeks you out so that he can say yes. Have you ever asked him, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner? Will you cleanse me of all my sin? Will you deliver me from death? And will you 
in your great mercy and kindness, bring me into your kingdom. Have you, have you ever prayed that? Have you begged him? Have you ever asked? Because what we see in this text is he says, I will. I will. But here's the thing. You must see yourself as unclean or you'll never come. You must see yourself as unworthy or you'll never beg. And you must see yourself unable because you'll never see him as your only hope. That's what we're presented with here in the gospel this morning. If you don't know Jesus, I'm going to be standing out in the lobby where I always do. Don't be prideful. Know that you have heard the words of life today. And he has extended to you the forgiveness of all your sins. But you must come, and you must not walk away. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Jesus, we see you in all your goodness, in all your beauty, and all your splendor. We see you as the, the suffering servant who, who bears our guilt and our shame and our sin, and you ultimately did that on the cross, and you defeated Satan, sin, and death through the resurrection. And we thank you, Jesus. We thank you. We give you honor. We give you praise that that while we were dead in our sins, you spoke the word and made us alive with you. You spoke life to us. And you have raised us up so that we may serve you and serve in your name. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us strength this week. You would remind us of your goodness, your compassion to us, that how you have forgiven us of all of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that we would go and extend that grace to the world, that compassion, that offer of salvation. May we be faithful, and may we do that because we have seen and been reminded of how faithful you've been to us. And so we pray these things in your holy, awesome, gracious, and merciful name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and let's sing.